I'm just going to step back too far. Wouldn't be a good way to go. <laughs> but, <laughs> right, sorry. Good evening. Um, good evening. We'll come to uh, the passage we're going to be looking at in a sec. Um, but I have great news, which is that this is a bonus sermon. Um, or you can, you can decide that at the end anyway. Um, this morning, uh, sorry, I'll go back. This term, uh, we've been looking at a series called Encounters, where we've looked through John's Gospel. And um, we've been looking at different people who met with Jesus or groups of people who met with Jesus. And we've been looking at those different encounters as John records them and thinking, what can we learn about Jesus and what can we learn about ourselves uh, through that process? But this morning, um, we had a special guest come and speak at the morning service from Open Doors. Always get that the wrong way around. Um, which is a Christian uh, organization that supports the persecuted church around the world. Um, and partly I say that to say, if you weren't here this morning, I highly recommend downloading that um, sermon when it goes up this week because it was really really um, challenging and inspirational actually to hear just a few stories of what Christians around the world are um, are doing and it yeah I think we might touch on that later um, but that means that this evening you we're looking at an encounter that the morning service haven't looked at so if you've got friends who only go to the morning service you can take a few notes from tonight and then just drop them into conversation um, and then score yourself some high points, um, or not, depending on how it goes. Uh, right, we're gonna, we'll read the passage in a sec. Um, we're going to look particularly tonight at, um, at the crowds in John's Gospel, which I've got to be honest, when I read that, it feels a little bit like we've done everyone and then we're just doing the rest. But I don't think it will be like that, hopefully. Um, we're going to look at one passage in particular, but we'll, we'll dive around a couple of others. Um, and before we read the passage... I just want to remind us of um, one particular question that John wants us to answer as we read his gospel. And John's really helpful in that he makes that explicit in his gospel. And the question that John has for us is, who is Jesus? Who is he? That's the question that he wants us to answer. Um, you may remember John chapter 1, he starts by answering that question straight away. He says that he thinks that Jesus is the word of God. He's been there from creation. Sorry, he's been there forever. He's the one through whom everything was created. He describes him as being like the light coming into the darkness, but the darkness hasn't understood it. And then he has that amazing promise that actually for anyone who does believe in Jesus, uh, there is the opportunity to become a child of God, um, born of God. So John sets up right from the outset. He says, I think that Jesus is God. I think Jesus is the Messiah. I think he is the one through whom salvation and restoration and healing come and through whom we can know eternal life. And then towards the end of his sermon, uh, he gives us... Oh, Chris, I've broken it. The, the Bible reading. Oh, he gives us this. Marvellous. Um, he says this is right towards the end of the sermon. He records one of the miracles, but he's... he's He's spoken about a lot of others, and then he says this, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So whatever else we uh, think about today, that's the question that John wants us to answer. John was a disciple of Jesus, an eyewitness to the stuff that went on, and he's writing after Jesus has died and come back to life to say, you need to make a decision about this guy because it's a life changer 
Um, and then he's putting forward his um, evidence, effectively, his experience of Jesus that he thinks demonstrates Jesus is the Messiah. And he does that in a few different ways. He does that by presenting some of the miraculous things that Jesus did. He does that by presenting some of Jesus' teaching and his ministry, the places he went to, the people he meets. And he does it very intentionally by recording a number of interactions that Jesus has had that we've been looking at this term with individuals who are trying to answer that question. Who is this guy? And John very intentionally records both sides of that dialogue as if to say there is a decision to be made. Here, here's the arguments that people were going through and for and against as they met with Jesus. And we all have the same question to answer. So the passage we're going to look at um, tonight is John chapter 12. We're going to start at verse 12. In the Red Bibles, it's page 1079. And on the large print Bibles, it's page 1671. And just to put that in some context, in the previous chapter, Jesus' friend Lazarus has died, but been raised back to life. Um, and then the Passover feast is about to come, and Jesus is making his way towards uh, Jerusalem. And in the passage that we read last week, he stayed with Mary and Martha and Lazarus, and we saw the picture of what was happening there. And what's happening now is he's, he's going into Jerusalem for the Passover feast. So we're in John chapter 12. We're going to start at verse 12. It says this, the next day, the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it as it is written, do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had given this miraculous sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. I'm just going to pray quickly before we try and unpack that a bit more. Father, thank you. Um, well, thank you for the privilege that we, can, we live in a country where we can just open your Bible and read your word. Uh, thank you for the reminder this morning of what an amazing privilege that is. Um, and Lord, pray that we don't take that for granted. And as we read this passage and as we think about um, this topic, I pray that you would meet with us. I pray that by your spirit, you would speak to us through your word. Lord, speak through what I say or speak in spite of what I say. But Lord, speak to us by your spirit, I pray, and change us, challenge us, and change us to be more like you. Amen. It looks like an amazing victory, doesn't it? As in, if, if John's intention is to convince us that Jesus is the king, that he is the Messiah, then this is an amazing victory, this, this um, account. As Jesus rides into Jerusalem and people come out and they, they lay down palms in front of him and he rides through them and they celebrate him, they worship him. Hosanna means God, God is saving, God saves. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's a quote from Psalm 118 
which references the Messiah. Blessed is the King of Israel. As you read through John's Gospel, it appears that this is it, that they've got it, that they're celebrating who Jesus is. It's a picture of triumph, isn't it? But if you read the accounts in the other Gospels, it's a little bit more nuanced than that. According to Luke, Jesus is weeping throughout this encounter as he laments over the spiritual state of Jerusalem, the city that he's going to go into, and by inference of the crowds around him. He's surrounded by a crowd that appear to be adoring him, but in a few days' time, he'll be surrounded by a different crowd. It might contain the same people, it might not. But in front of that crowd, he'll be paraded around in a mock robe and a crown of thorns, humiliated as a pretend king, and that crowd will be baying for his blood. And a week after the encounter in our passage, he'll be dead. He'll be crucified as a convicted criminal, and the crowds will have had a major part to play in that. So what is going on? Philip Yancey, in one of his books, um, talks a little bit about um, the triumphal entry, and I find it really helpful. He, he, he goes through this process, and I encourage you to do the same. He says, imagine that you're in Jerusalem at the time Jerusalem is occupied by the Romans. He says, imagine that you're a Roman officer, and you hear from the crowds around that there is someone coming that they think is a king, and they're going to give him a triumphal entry. Now, if you're a Roman officer, you know a bit about triumphal entries. They did that when they, had, when they were victorious in war. They came back into their towns. They paraded. The soldiers came through. The crowds came out to meet them. All the gold that they'd plundered along with their golden chariots, they rode back into town, and the crowds roared for them. He says, imagine that you're an officer, and just out of curiosity, you take your chariot out, and you go and have a look at this guy who is coming in. And Philip Yancey puts it like this. He says, In Jesus' triumphal entry, the adoring crowd makes up a ragtag procession, the lame, the blind, the children, the peasants from Galilee and Bethany. When the officer looks for the object of that attention, he spies a forlorn figure, weeping, riding on no stallion or chariot, but on the back of a baby donkey, a borrowed coat draped across its backbone, serving his, as his saddle. And then Yancey says this, he says, yes, there was a whiff of triumph on Palm Sunday, but not the kind of triumph that might impress Rome and not the kind that impressed the crowds in Jerusalem for long either. What manner of king was this? What manner of king was this? That's the question that John poses to us. And that is the question that the crowds throughout his gospel debate, they can see through the things that Jesus does that there is something about him. In fact, most of them are convinced that no one, unless they came from God, could do the things that he is doing. But what they cannot put, put together is the combination of what they think he will be like and how he actually behaves. What manner of king is this? Let me give you a few um, examples. It's quite an <laughs> I found it quite interesting. It's quite interesting to go through John's Gospel um, 
and to see where the crowds come up. John very intentionally puts them in um, to show us, I think, what the kind of general perception is. We have some specific examples of individuals who meet Jesus, and we have the Pharisees as the kind of religious order. But the crowds come up again and again and again, and I think what John is doing is saying, this is what people generally were saying. Um, obviously, they're not always the same, I assume, they're not always the same people. Like um, Some of them presumably did follow Jesus around, but there was something like two million people came to Jerusalem for the Passover at this kind of time, so... That's quite a crowd. I don't think they were there most of the time. But he does it, I think, to give us a sense of what the kind of perception was and the dialogue that was going on as people were trying to understand. Let me just give you a few examples. Um, we won't go through them for our paraphrase for brevity, but do go and check them later. So in John chapter 6, Jesus feeds 5,000 men plus women and children, so a lot of people. It is a miracle. The people recognize that it's a miracle, and they try to seize him and make him king by force, because they believe he is the prophesied king of Israel. Jesus responds by just disappearing through the crowd and going off on his own to pray. Okay? Later on in that chapter, after a bit of walking on water, um, they meet up with him again and he starts to teach them. And the people who were going to make him king say, This is too hard. And people who were told were his disciples, so people who had committed to following him, not the twelve, but others turn away, they leave him. They just say, this is too hard, what he's teaching. And you get that amazing bit where he turns to the 12 and says, you're not leaving too, are you? And Peter says, not. We love it. We can't get enough of this. He just says, where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. To who else would we go? Chapter 7 is um, another feast in Jerusalem, and Jesus goes down to teach, and people are expecting him to be there. So they're ready, they're ready to talk about him. There's clearly a lot of discussion going on among whom he, about who he is. And the debate between the people is whether some people think he's the Christ, they think he's the Messiah, the, the fulfillment of the prophecy throughout the Old Testament of someone who's going to come and bring salvation. And other people think he's demon-possessed. And those conversations just go backwards and forwards throughout that chapter. There's an amazing verse in chapter 7 where it says, some people wanted to seize him, as in to arrest him and kill him, but others put their faith in him. And that just seems to be what's going on. And that carries on into chapter 8 as Jesus keeps teaching to them. Chapter 8, verse 30, we're told that a large number of people put their faith in him. And as you read in the gospel, you're like, that is great. One verse later, we're told that to the people who had believed in him, Jesus aimed basically this teaching. And he goes on a, a line of teaching which effectively leads them to think that he's questioning their heritage in Abraham, as in as children of Abraham. About 18 verses after that, the people who have put their faith in him and believed in him say, isn't it true that you're a Samaritan and you're demon-possessed? And by the end of the chapter, they're picking up stones to stone him to execute him for blasphemy. And this dialogue is going on and on and on. Um, and it leads you to think, what is Jesus doing? Like These people are putting their trust in him, apparently. They were told that they follow him. And then he hits them with teaching that they just, they just can't take it. They're just like, whoa, no, that's not what we signed up for. Um, we thought you were something totally different. And what I think you see as you go through this gospel is that Fundamentally, Jesus is not interested in a numbers 
game. He's not interested in just getting as many people as possible in his crew. Jesus wants people who not only recognize him as the Messiah, but are willing to follow him wherever he goes. Um, This picture did the rounds a few years ago. I like it. Jesus saying to someone, no, I'm not talking about Twitter. I literally want you to follow me. Um, I won't overplay the link here, but there is something about this. Jesus isn't interested in a numbers game. Jesus is interested in the people who will follow him wherever he goes. You remember, um, remember Peter? Lord, you have the words of eternal life. Where else would we go? Not, we're having the best time ever, or not. No, we really enjoy spending time with you. But we've come to the conclusion that you are the Son of God. And if that's true, there is literally only one place we want to be, and that is with you. And that is the question that's going through the gospel. As the crowds, time and time again, look at what Jesus is doing and saying, effectively what they're saying is, we believe this person is the Messiah, they're the King, they're the promised King from the Old Testament. But where they then fall down is that they've got a very strong preconception of what that King will be like. And they cannot marry Jesus up with that. If you like, Jesus is a round peg and they cannot fit him in a hole that they have assumed is square. What they have been told about the Messiah, what they have assumed about the Messiah, has led them to to limit their understanding of what God's Messiah will be like. And they cannot tally up what Jesus is actually saying and what he's actually doing with what they effectively want their Messiah to be. And that plays out in the passage that we're looking at back in John chapter 12. Because John plays quite a, a um, subtle link here. You see what they're, what they're shouting as they welcome him. They put down palm leaves. Palm leaves, they, um, they symbolize victory. But they also symbolize um, Jewish independence. They become a symbol since a, a Jewish rebellion that had been put down about 100 or so years before, maybe a bit more than that. Um, But since then, the the palm leaf had become a symbol of Jewish independence. And they quote Psalm 118, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, which is about uh, the Messiah. And then they say, Blessed is the King of Israel. This crowd are looking for a Messiah. But they're looking for a Messiah that's going to do something very specific in their minds. They're looking for a Messiah that's going to set them free, but in their, in their mindset, that is freedom from Rome. So Jerusalem and Israel are currently under Roman occupation. And they believe that God is going to send someone who's going to bring them out of Roman occupation, effectively who's going to bring war, who's going to come and drive the Romans out, and who's going to unite Israel again and be the king of Israel and lead Israel to be a nation above all other nations. They're looking for a king who is going to do that. And they're celebrating Jesus as he comes into Jerusalem because saying, this is it. This is the time we're going to take over. We're going to take back control. We're going to take back uh, Israel and God is going to bless us. And Jesus uh, comes in on a donkey. And John points out very poignantly that that links back to a, a prophecy in Zechariah which came hundreds of years before. 
I'm going to put two verses up from that prophecy. And I just want you to compare that kind of picture of a Messiah who's going to come with war and who's going to come for Israel with what Zechariah promises this Messiah is going to do. It's a picture of a triumphal entry. And he says this, so that, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. You see the difference in that prophecy from what they were expecting? God has prophesied a Messiah who's going to come to bring peace, not war. And isn't just going to be for Israel, it's going to be for all nations, from the river to the ends of the earth. And Jesus comes on a donkey as a symbol that he is that Messiah. He is the one who will bring peace. The vision that the crowds have for what the Messiah will do is too small. They think it's all about Israel. But God's plan is for salvation of the whole world. They think it's all about driving the Romans out and taking back control of Jerusalem. But God has a plan to deal with sin and the separation that we have between us and God that it results in. But because they've blinkered their view of what God is like, because they've blinkered their view of what the Messiah will be like, they will miss Jesus. They will miss what he's really about. They will reject him a few days later. And that's why in Luke we're told that Jesus weeps as he comes into Jerusalem. And let me just, I'm just going to read the first bit of this, but this is what he says. Luke says, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, Jesus wept over it. And he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The crowds thought that peace would come when they defeated the Romans and took their nation back, when they had a king who was a warrior. But God's vision for peace is far, far greater. God's vision for peace was a Messiah who wouldn't bring war, but would bring self-sacrifice. Who wouldn't go into Jerusalem and drive people out, but would come into Jerusalem and give up his own life. Why? So that not just Israel could be saved, but all of us could know the reality of restored relationship with God. But the crowds on that day's view of what God could do was too small, and so they missed him. So how does that affect us? 2,000 years later, we're not in Jerusalem. We're not going to get the palm trees down. Um, How does it affect us? Um, Well, firstly, I think it affects us very directly. I don't think you can look at a passage from John's Gospel without recognizing the question that he's putting in front of us. It's the question we looked at at the the start, and it's the question that throughout he uses um, the crowds to demonstrate. Fundamentally, we have to make a decision about who Jesus is. Um, And if you haven't done that, 
then hear this now. John is saying to us, you've got to decide who he is because it changes everything. We've got the same decision to make that the crowd's made. Either he's demon-possessed, he's evil, uh, and intentionally betraying people, or he's mad, he's just a nutter, he's going around saying he's the Messiah, but he isn't. Or he is the Son of God. And that's John's conviction. And if that is true, it changes everything. If that is true, then by putting our trust in him, we can know salvation, we can know healing, we can know restoration. We can be children of God, back in relationship with our Heavenly Father. We can know eternal life. And we can know, as Jesus says, life in its fullness now. We have to make that decision. That's the fundamental message of the crowds in John's Gospel. And if that's a process that you're going through um, or you want to think about that, then uh, don't. I just want to encourage you, if that is you, um, come and chat to me or to John or to everyone else. I'm not going to press gang you into making a decision, but there's loads of great resources uh, available that, that help us to make that, to look into the evidence for that. So please don't leave if that is you without going down, uh, without coming talking to us. But what if we have made that decision? What about us? The, the danger, in my experience, of looking at these kind of encounters is that we side ourselves with Jesus. Have you ever done that? When you look at a encounter where Jesus is talking to someone and you just say, oh, I wouldn't have made that mistake. Grief. Um, we've, we've looked in um, Cypher over the last few years quite a few times at a series similar to this. And I always find myself doing that. It's amazing how often when Jesus is talking to someone, you assume that you're on the same side as Jesus. Um, the reality is, in a, in a conversation between Jesus and a normal human being, it's unlikely that we're going to have more in, more in, um, in common with the Son of God. I'm just putting that out there. I don't want to prejudge you. But um, I, I feel quite challenged by um, the crowds, particularly in this passage. And I want to pick up on two things that have challenged me and actually quite encouraged me. The first is a sense of witness. Um, you see, in verse 17, it tells us why all these people were there. They were there because people had seen Lazarus raised from the dead, and they just went and told everyone. Um, and that's, I just think that's so inspirational. I think it's really easy, particularly if we're Christians, to become kind of blasé. Evangelism is this thing we know we should do because we want to get more people into church. But actually, it should work the other way around. When we really discover what Jesus is like, when we really see him at work, what an inspiration just be, to be able to go out and tell people what that is. Um, and I think there is, a, I, I want to pick up on that sense of their picture being too small of what God was like. I think there is a danger, particularly if I can say it in an evangelical setting, and particularly in this part of the world where we're relatively well educated, that we think, I can't go and tell people about Jesus until I know the vast majority of the answers, okay, because, uh, you know, I've got to get all that sorted before I go and tell other people. And I think this passage blows that apart because, first of all, I think it tells us that if our evangelism is, if our evangelism is limited to the things that we already know about God, that's going to be a pretty small God that we're telling people about, in my experience. I don't want to prejudge you. And the second thing is, the people in John chapter 12 knew nothing. They just knew that this guy had been raised from the dead. And they were like, everyone has to know about this fact. 
everyone has to see this guy because he is going around raising people from the dead or walking on water or whatever. I think there's something really powerful about us just being able to tell people what we know, what we have experienced about Jesus, about how he's changed our life, how he's changed the people that we know. Um, when we pray and we see answers, isn't it great to be able to go in and to tell people about that? I, I'm really inspired by witness in this passage. But the other thing I want to say um, is this. And this is the bit I've struggled to get this into a coherent sentence. So, well, I'll give it a go. There's only one more chance. Um, I think there's something about the main message here about the fact that they couldn't see Jesus because they had a preconception that is really relevant to our culture. And let me try and explain that. Most people I know who aren't Christians have had some kind of contact with church or Christianity. Okay? And for a lot of people I speak to, a conversation will go like this. Yeah, I went to Sunday school when I was little. To be honest, um, just I wasn't very good at the kind of colouring inside. I don't like the guitar. And so Christianity just isn't for me. Okay, something like that. Or, yeah, I knew this guy at uni. He was a Christian. He was quite out there. Um, and yeah, so it's just not for me. In the same way that this crowd had a preconception that they couldn't see outside, I think there is a sense in our culture of which people feel like they know enough about God to be able to write it off. Um, I've heard people talk about um, it being like inoculation. You know, inoculation when you put a little bit of a, a virus into someone and that builds up the antibodies and so then you're immune to the actual thing. Um, and all I really want to say in that is that as Christians, we mustn't underestimate the power of our personal testimony within that. And I just want to encourage us to be a combination of gentle, humble, and bold about when we come across that in our evangelism. Just something like saying, that's really interesting, but actually that's not really what I think about Christianity and the opportunity to explain what that kind of thing is. Or actually, that sounds like a bad experience, but that, the gospel, you know, the Bible tells us there's amazing stuff about what Jesus is like. Just bringing people back to our personal experience, what we have personally seen, and the truth that we've discovered in the gospel. We don't have to tell people everything, but we can bear witness to what we have seen. Just as I close, um, the other thing that inspires me in this passage, I won't talk as long about this, is worship. Um, it's really easy to give the crowds a hard time, I think, in this passage. But actually, their, their, past, their kind of example of corporate worship, I think, is amazing. Like, they know Jesus is coming, he turns up, and they just celebrate him. Okay, they don't totally know what he's there for. But they come together and they worship him. I think there is something really, 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 really powerful about when we come together and we worship God. And in the same way that we've been thinking um, about not needing to confine God to what we can understand, I think there's something really powerful in worship when we come together. Yes, there are things we can know about God because what we've read and what we've seen, we know about his goodness, we know about his faithfulness, we know about his love, we know he hates sin, we know that he's brought around a a plan for salvation. 
But whenever we're together, there will be a lot of us who have unanswered questions as well. And there's something I think really powerful about being able to worship in that place of uncertainty. And there are other examples of that in the Bible, which I think are really, really powerful. I'll just mention that in passing. I don't really have time to unpack that. But I want to encourage you, maybe you're in a place where you think, actually, there's just, I've got this real unanswered prayer and I don't know what God's doing or there's this thing going on in my life I don't know what God is doing there is something really powerful in the midst of that about when we cling to the things we do know and we worship him in the midst of the things that we don't understand Um, so if that's you I want to encourage you and I think what's so powerful about corporate worship is the sense that you have all of that spectrum you'll be there'll be people here tonight who'll be like things are brilliant And there'll be people here tonight who are like, things are falling apart. And to come together in that place and to say, we have the same God who is good and faithful and worthy of our praise. He is the king. That's where I'm going to finish. I'm going to land there. Let me just um, pray as we come to a close and then we'll move into worship. Lord, you're amazing. You are the Messiah. You are the king. You are the light that shines in the darkness. You are the word that's been there for eternity, through whom all things were made. And Lord, we worship you. And Lord, I pray for those of us who have questions, or um, I pray that you would meet us in those. But Lord, more than anything, I pray that you would inspire our witness, that as we go out tonight, that we would go out ready to tell people about what we know about you, about what you've done, about how awesome you are. Lord, I pray that you would take away from us a a fear or a need to have all the answers and that you would empower us by your spirit to tell people about what we know, what we've seen and what we've heard. And we pray that as we do that, you would draw more and more people to you, um, to worship you, to follow you as the king. I think we're going to go straight into worship, so if you want to stand, that would be great.